Well, today, we're going to move into chapter 17. And so as we look at this chapter, all we see is Paul continuing with his pattern of ministry. He moves from Philippi, he goes to Thessalonica first, then Berea, and then Athens. And we'll follow his journey through this chapter. And as you move through it, he has the same evangelistic pattern. You see, Paul was very strategic about his evangelistic efforts. He would pick a strategic city, a port city, a cosmopolitan city, in order to make sure that whoever intersected paths in those cities with Christians would take the gospel to the other parts of the Roman Empire. And so if you actually traced all of his missionary journeys, and there's four, three in the New, in the New Testament, one after the New Testament was already uh, complete, the book of Acts specifically, but there's four journeys that he took in his life covering about 10,000 miles in the duration of his 30 or 35-year ministry. And he's always very strategic. But the pattern continues, and you hopefully will remember what happens every single time he enters a location to preach and proclaim Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So just a refresher. In Damascus, he goes there, he preaches that this is Acts chapter 9, and there's an assassination attempt on his life, and then he's driven out. Jerusalem, at the end of chapter 9, again, another assassination attempt, and then he's driven out. In uh, Salamis, Acts 13, he's opposed by a magician, and then he leaves. Syria, Antioch, he's hackled by Jews, and then he's driven out. This is chapter 13 at the very end. Iconium, he's hackled by more Jewish people and an attempt to stone him. He leaves at the beginning of chapter 14. Middle of chapter 14, he goes to Lystra and he's stoned, if you remember that episode, uh, nearly to death. And then he gets up and gets back into the city. Philippi, just from the last chapter, he's seized, he's beaten, he's dragged, he's arrested. That pattern continued to every single city that he entered. There was always opposition to the gospel. Chapter 17 is no exception. Because as we begin this chapter, he is in Thessalonica. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but we'll pick at some verses as we move through it. Thessalonica was the second most important city in all of Greece. It was a cosmopolitan town. It had a population of about 200,000 people. It was a port city. And it was the capital of Macedonia. Ninety years prior to Paul's arrival, the Romans gave it independence. Therefore, it had a unique status among all of the various cities in the Roman Empire. The people who lived in Thessalonica were proud of their city. They were wealthy. They were known. It was kind of like living in London because the paths between east and west of the Roman Empire crossed. Kind of like Heathrow today. So many flights cross Heathrow as you go from one part of the world to another. That was Thessalonica. So Paul spends two to four weeks in this city. It's unclear exactly how many, but it says three Sabbaths he preached there. That's two to four weeks of a time period. Now, Philippi is about 95 miles away, LA to Oceanside distance. And so the people in Philippi end up supporting Paul when he's in Thessalonica. In Philippians 4.16, it says multiple times they came and brought him money when he was in Thessalonica. So they followed him. These converts at the end of chapter 16, they followed him and wanted to support his ministry no matter where he went. Now, while there is opposition, if you look at verses 4, verse 4 rather, it says some of them were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas along with the large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. These are your Lauren Brown types, leaders in the community. And so they were receptive to the gospel. 
But then look at verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, and here it is, this is key, there is another king, Jesus. This scene of being dragged and nearly beaten and brought forward before the authorities is reminiscent of Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of 8, when Paul orchestrated the stoning of Stephen. We know that. Because back in the day, the person who was watching the clothes of the actual killers was the guy in charge. He was too important to get his hands dirty with, with stones and blood. And so he was just the one overseeing the whole event. That was Paul. Now, this is almost a similar scene. Now, one of Paul's associates is about to go through a similar experience. In fact, in Acts 21, Paul was about to go through a similar experience himself when they were about to drag him out until a centurion intervened. The focus here falls on verse 7. Paul is preaching another King Jesus. Remember, Thessalonica is an important city. They have freedom from Roman taxation. They have an independent government. A lot of them are wealthy and retired. They love their villas. They love their independence. And so they don't want to do anything that may politically uh, jeopardize their relationship with Rome. So for them, this seems like an insurrection that Paul and his associates are now proclaiming some competitor to Caesar. If you actually looked at 1 Thessalonians, when Paul wrote a letter to them shortly after leaving this situation, he uses words that are contrary, or in, let me say this, in competition to Caesar. Kurios, Lord, we know that word, is applied to Jesus, but it was Caesar's title. Peace and safety, you see that in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. That's Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. If you know your Roman history, you know that phrase. Because Caesar brought that to the Roman Empire. And all of a sudden, Paul is applying those terms to another king, Jesus. Of course, that will come across as politically competitive. And so these people are so protective of their position, they want to make sure that nobody will accuse them of insurrection. And so they are about to follow the leading of the Jewish people in order to get rid of Paul. But get this. From the beginning of Christianity, starting with Jesus Christ himself, it's always been a message of a different king and a different kingdom. In every single gospel, when Jesus appears before Pilate, the same question is asked by Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? You know, some details are different in the gospels, but that one detail is consistent. And every single time, Jesus says, I am. And Jesus responds, but my kingdom is not of this world. Our pastor in, in the January of this year did a masterful job going through multiple passages talking about the kingdom of this world versus the kingdom that's in the next world. So we are subjects of a different king. Our fidelity and our loyalty lies with another king in another kingdom. At the end of the Gospel of John, in that scene of Jesus before Pilate, and then Pilate brings him out. In chapter 19, verse 14, Jesus, Pilate says to the people who are crying out for Jesus' blood, Behold your king. 
And in verse 15, the people respond, we have no king but Caesar. The irony of that is this. From the Babylonian empire, the Jewish people had the opposite mantra. We have no king but Yahweh. Our king is God and his Messiah, his coming Messiah. But in the moment when they had to make a decision, are we going to choose Jesus as king or are we going to choose Caesar as king? They choose Caesar. In Thessalonica, the same choice is made by the people. They have Jesus as king, one option, or they have Caesar and they choose Caesar. You are here upsetting the world and you are preaching another king, Jesus. So Paul ends up moving from Thessalonica to Berea. 45 miles west of Thessalonica. And we look at verse 11. We know Berea because it has one of the most famous verses in the book of Acts. Verse 11. These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They, were, they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So we know that ministries are named after this verse, right? The Bereans. It's a famous statement. So Paul is now ministering in Berea, and we meet more Lauren Brown types in verse 12. Many of them believed prominent women. So the prominent women, prominent men, the Greeks, the Jews are getting saved through Paul's ministry. Even though there is opposition and hostility. But there is one unifying theme in all these cities. Verse 2, it says... He was reasoning with them for three Sabbaths from the scriptures. Verse 13. When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God was proclaimed. Verse 18. Towards the end of verse 18, because he was preaching Jesus. Verse 23. While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The word for proclaim is actually a word that's repeatedly used to refer to the preaching of the gospel. It's a declaration of victory. Jesus' victory in this life. So in four different verses, you have either a direct statement or an implied statement that it's all about the word of God, the scriptures, Jesus Christ being proclaimed and being preached. But that echoes the refrain of the book of Acts in three places. So hopefully you've seen these verses by now. Acts 6, 7, Herod dies, the word of God kept on spreading. 12, 24, I'm sorry, 12, 24 is where Herod dies. Chapter 6, you have that conflict between the Jewish and the Gentile women, and the deacons are nominated. 1224 is the story of Herod's death, and this is the ending of that story. The word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. 1920, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Those are your key verses in the book of Acts that kind of hold the whole thing together. The word of God keeps moving no matter what the opposition is. In this chapter, we have four references to the same. The word of God continues to expand. It continues to grow through the faithful proclamation of Paul and his associates. And the result is salvation. Verse 4, in Thessalonica, some were persuaded and joined. In verse 12, they believed. And then at the end of the story, which is where we're about to get to, verse 34, some men joined him and believed 
And then you have a couple names and a woman named Damaris. This is how this chapter fits into the tapestry of the book of Acts. The word of God continues to be proclaimed. The word of God continues to do its work. You remember Isaiah 55. The word of the Lord goes forth and does not come back void. And there's evidence of that in Acts chapter 17. But for the rest of the morning, I'd like us to zoom in into the final episode. The final town, the city of Athens. Where Paul has a speech. He has three major speeches in the book of Acts. Chapter 13 to the Jews. Chapter 17 to the Gentiles. Chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders. To the church, you could say. And this one is to the Jews. And as we move into this section, we'll see more evidence of the word of God working, saving, and of course, more opposition. Paul is in Athens at the Areopagus. There should be an image of the Areopagus. You have an idea of what it looked like in Paul's day. So somewhere on that hill, on Mars Hill, Paul is standing around with philosophers who are theologizing, who are philosophizing about life and about deities. And as Paul is making his way through this area, he stumbles upon an altar called to the unknown God. There's an image of that as well. This is what it looked like. This is actually from Rome, Palatine Hill Museum. This was found in, uh, in uh, one of the cities in Rome. And so this is what it looked like. And there's an inscription to the unknown God. The people of Athens wanted to be all-encompassing. They didn't want to offend any deity by accident. So they said, let's just have one more altar in case we missed a God. Paul uses that as an on-ramp for the gospel. And so we begin the story in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would see God if perhaps they may grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then the children of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by an art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some began to sneer. Here's your first element of opposition, mockery. But others said, we'll hear you again concerning this. Intrigue. So Paul went out of their midst. But some joined him and believed. And now you have a commitment to the gospel. Among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. The fact that he has this title, the Areopagite, probably means 
he spent most of his life in that area. He's kind of hanging out, being with the philosophers, and talking about deities. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. As Paul begins this conversation with the Gentiles, the Greeks, the Athenians, the elite individuals, the people that would spend their day talking about philosophy and theology didn't have to work to survive, in other words. So you have wealthy individuals on this hill. And so Paul goes at them directly with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But notice he doesn't mock them. He doesn't ridicule them. He doesn't insult them. He doesn't call them, you bunch of pagans. He says, I noticed that you're very religious, verse 22. He wants to find some common ground to say, I want to talk to you about something that seems to be important to you. And I want to give you more information because you are ignorant. He does say, you worship in ignorance at the end of verse 23. You have an altar to the unknown God. So Paul isn't a mocking evangelist. But he certainly is an honest evangelist. He treats them as those who have a general sense of fear of God. They were sincerely seeking to worship a God or gods, plural. And he says, let me give you some information about the true God. Well, you see that they wanted to cover all of their bases And Paul's approach was the same that he gave to Timothy at the end of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Just listen to this because this is an example of what Paul taught and lived out. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That was Paul's understanding of the people in front of him. They were enslaved by Satan. They weren't necessarily villains. They weren't the enemy. They were enslaved to a horrible master. And he's there to free them. This is a perfect example of what Paul later would write to his own protege. And so Paul begins the conversation where Psalm 115 verse 3 begins. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he wants. He goes after the sovereignty of God. When Paul is speaking to the Jews, he talks about Jewish law. Their expectation about the coming Messiah. You see that in multiple chapters in the rest of the book of Acts. When Paul addresses the Gentiles, they don't have any messianic expectations. So he goes after something that is common to them, creation, and the God who made it all possible. And so he goes after God as the sovereign ruler. Paul introduces them to the sovereignty of God. And I think from this section of scripture, we can glean some truths about God's sovereignty, God's providence that will give us hope. As Christians, it'll give us hope, but it'll also give us a model to follow when we evangelize to the people who aren't Christians and may have not been ever Christianized in any way. Paul says you have to recognize the sovereignty of God over your life. A.W. Tozer has a very famous quote that helps us to understand why Paul would begin with the sovereignty of God. This is what he wrote. What comes into our minds when we think about God 
is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And men's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but that he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. In other words, we frame our lives in response to our understanding of God. And the founding doctrine of who God is, is the sovereignty of God. What you think about the sovereignty of God in your life And the difference between sovereignty and providence is this. Sovereignty is general. Providence is one that sovereignty touches your life in every single detail. What you think about sovereignty and providence will dictate how you respond to every single life situation. It'll give you hope. It'll give you calm. And it'll give you an expectation and trust that God actually does know what he's doing even in the most difficult times. So my desire is to encourage you to embrace the sovereignty of God in your life. That's what Paul tried to do, to use that as an evangelistic tool. For us as Christians, we can respond to this by embracing the sovereignty of God in the life. So embrace the sovereign God who is, first of all, the author of your life. He's the author of your life. We see that in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made in hands. He's, served by, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives life to all people and breath and all things. And then look at verse 28. In him we live and move and exist. So Paul goes right after the fundamental principle, you have your life because God gave you your life. He created you. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, he is in control of what's above you And what's below you, heaven and earth. And unlike every other God you may imagine, speaking to these Athenians, he doesn't need a temple to live in. He doesn't need humans to survive. Psalm 50 makes it very clear. Verse 10. For every beast of the earth is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. That's God's perspective on his creation as a sovereign God. Everything in this world, in this universe is mine. I don't need you. I'm not going to tell you when I'm hungry. This is God's attitude. It's all mine. You can't provide for him and you can't contain him. Instead, in verse 25, he gives life to everyone. This is the first manifestation of God's sovereignty over your life. Your life is given to you by God. Your breath is given to you by God. All things are given to you by God. And he says it literally in verse 28 in this way. In him we live and move and we are. He doesn't finish that state. We are. 
Basically, you are because of God. That's it. It's all-encompassing. He makes it emphatic by omitting some words in the original language to make sure we get the point. You are, period, because of God. Our lives, we owe it to God. Our every breath, we owe it to God. Whatever most prized possession you have, maybe it's a purse. <laughs> maybe it's a book. I'm trying to connect with women. <laughs> you know, as a single guy, now that you all know that. Purses and not cars, that's my thing. A book, perhaps. Maybe something passed down from generation to generation and you value it. Whatever you have, the children, the husband, it's God's gift to you. And what a perfect reminder from 1 Corinthians 4 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you have received it, then why do you act as if you had not received it? It's one of the most powerful verses to counter our pride. Everything we have is from God. You and I owe our entire lives to God. He is the author of our life. Therefore, embrace his providence. Secondly, he is the architect of your life. And we see that in verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. From one man, every nation of mankind. That's determining your last name. He determined your last name, the family that you were born into. He also determined the length of your life, how long you will live, having determined their appointed times. So he determines your last name. He determines the length of your life. And then the last phrase, and the boundaries of your habitation, the location of your life. From who you were born to, to how long you live, to where you live. He is the architect of our lives, completely in control. So if these details from your birth to ultimately your death, how long you live, are determined by God and superintended by God, then everything in between is under God's control as well. He's the one who determines when you marry for a single people. He's the one who determines if you have kids or how many kids you have. He's the one who determines if you will outlive your kids. Those are the difficult parts of life. He determines that. He determines the health that you will have while living. See, Paul wants to make sure that these Athenians understand that they're not dealing with a God who can be contained. Instead, it's a God who leads them in every detail of their life. That may sound as if you're just a robot. You're just a pawn, right? I have no freedom whatsoever. If God determines everything, then what's the point? It could come across that way. Here's how I think we can interpret this. He's the personal architect. When you build a house or when you design a house, there are certain things that you want in your house. Perhaps the color of your tile or your, the floor, perhaps the window trim. You can determine those things. 
But there are certain things that the architect has to design for you. The beams, the framing, the foundation, the door jams and all that. Now, is he doing that to control you? He's doing that to protect you. And really, you have no freedom to determine what beams you'll put in your house, depending on you know, whatever regulations there are. There's a personal architect in our life. He's not there to control you and destroy you and treat you as a pawn. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants to protect you. And so he regulates our lives. And we see that so vividly in Psalm 139. Verse 13 says, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. That's the, the care, the personal element of our architect. He loves you and he cares for you and he wove you with a, in a masterful way. Why is God so concerned about us? He just said to us, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us at all. We saw that in verse 25. Psalm 50 makes it so clear. Psalm 24 verse 1 makes it so clear. The earth is mine and everything that is in it. That's Psalm 24 1. So why is God so concerned? And why does he contribute to our success in life? Takes us to our final element in embracing God's providence or God's sovereignty. And that is because he's the authority of your life. He's the author, the architect, and the authority over our lives. And we see that in verses 27 and beyond. So he establishes where we live, how long we live, and what our last name is. Because of verse 27, that they would seek God. If perhaps they may grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, we are also his children. Being then the children of God... We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold, silver, stone, or anything else that's formed by art and thought of men. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men and all people everywhere that they should repent because there is a judgment day coming through one man whom he raised from the dead. The argument that Paul makes goes from creation to intimacy. You are a child of God. He says that twice. And therefore God cares for you. And therefore God wants to lead you. God sets the boundaries of creation. You remember God's speech to Job? I tell where the waves must stop. Remember that? And God says, and I also regulate the boundary of your life. Because you are a child of God, verse 29. God wants to have an intimate, personal relationship with each individual. And because of that, he moves us in his providential plan. There is a tug, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, toward eternity in every single soul. And he has instilled that into every single human because he wants to spend eternity with every single human. God created us for himself, to worship him, to enjoy him forever. 
And so now he says, okay, I'm going to move you toward this final phase and to say there is a judgment day coming. There is an authority over your life. His name is Jesus Christ. In other words, God is, again, trying to protect us from judgment day. And he says, I will lead you in my life in order to make sure that when that day comes, you won't be judged. It's a fixed day, verse 31. It's through one man, verse 31. John 5.22 says, even the father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the son. Romans 2.16 says, God will judge the secrets of man through Christ Jesus. That's how God designed the plan. Jesus Christ will ultimately be the only judge. And therefore, verse 30 exclaims, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God's now declaring to all men everywhere, repent. Because of that coming day. You see, this is the zenith point of the whole story. This is the climax of this chapter. It's the call to repentance. It's the evangelistic message. Paul wants all these Athenians to repent. And, God, and Paul wants us to be reminded. We too repent. That ultimately, it's not about where you live. It's about who you submit to. And who is the king of your life. You see, in verse 30 and 31... Paul answers the cry of Job from Job chapter 9, verse 2. How can a man be made right with God? Then verse 15, Job says, though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. Verse 28, I know that you will not acquit me. Verse 29, I am accounted wicked. Verse 32, for he's not a man as I am that I may answer him, that I may go to court together with him. Verse 33, there is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Job's cry for justice and vindication and forgiveness is there's nobody that I know who can actually connect me with God. And then Paul comes in and says, there is somebody. Jesus Christ. To avoid us being sucked into the dark and gloomy cloud of judgment in the future. Paul says there is a mediator. There is one man, an arbiter. And according to 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5, it says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. See, it's an evangelistic message ultimately. And it's a message that gives us hope because in 1 Timothy 1, 1, Paul personifies Jesus Christ as hope. Listen to this. Paul, 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. He omits the verb to make sure we get the message. He is hope. Everything that we want, everything that we hope for in the future, the forgiveness, the eternity with God, Jesus Christ encompasses. He is Hope. That's Paul's message. And then you open up Hebrews chapter 6, and beginning in verse 18, you see this author's perspective on hope. Verse 18. We, who have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. 
where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The imagery here is waves pounding against us, against the harbor. And he says, the ship can come in safely and be the anchor of our soul while everything is beating around us and and aims to destroy us. That anchor is Christ Jesus. The one who preceded us and entered behind the veil, he is our high priest. And then he says in chapter 10, boldly enter behind the veil. Because Christ waits for you, our hope. You see, as you think about Acts 17, three different cities, multiple responses to the same message, starting with a claim that there is another King Jesus. And ending with the claim that he is the judge. And if you want to face him as only your king and your savior and avoid him as the judge, then verse 31, repent. Verse 30, rather, repent. Repent. But for us who have repented, for those of us who are Christians, remember this section that says God has orchestrated every single molecule. He has orchestrated every single detail in your life in order to express his love for you, his protection for you, his provision for you, because he cares that much for you, because you are a child of God. And he's given Jesus Christ as a reminder that he will lead you to the other side of the shore. He will bring you safely behind the veil. He is our hope. So that whenever life may get difficult, you remember who God truly is. He's the author, the architect, and the authority of your life. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for you, our Father, and for Jesus Christ, your Son. That you sent him to die for our sins and to save us from the future judgment. We thank you for the Spirit who works in our lives, who convicts us of sin, and who empowers us towards sanctification. I ask that as we hear this message, as we contemplate it and discuss it in a few minutes, that we would be encouraged to always find our hope in you. You are sovereign. You are providential, and we embrace that providence. We thank you, and we trust you. Amen.